Well, uh, there are moments in parenting when a strong warning is required in order to, to lovingly uh, protect your child, right? I, I have a few memories of such moments uh, in my parenting years. I, I, we have three kids. Uh, they're, they're older now for the most part, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 12-year-old. But I, I remember one such memory in particular, our 16-year-old, now 16-year-old daughter, not when she was 16, that would have been weird uh, if she was doing this uh, now. But when she was a really little girl, I'm, I'm talking like three, maybe four, uh, I remember coming out of a, a store and she just suddenly kind of just broke free and just started darting, sprinting toward a very busy parking lot, right? To which I just immediately yelled, stop, right? And uh, sprinted after her, swooped her up into my arms, right? A moment like that, calls for a strong warning, right? You don't just say, hey, would you, would you like to stop running right now, right, before you get hit by a car? No, you, you yell, right? You, you're like, stop, you're, you're in danger. And, and generally, children will respond to a little bit different inflection and tone, like they can hear danger in that tone. Uh, a moment like that calls for a strong warning. The potential danger demands a strong warning. And I share that not because we're going to have a sermon on parenting today. We're actually not. Uh, but because we come to a passage here in Hebrews chapter 10 that gives us a very strong warning. And it's a strong warning because the potential consequences it warns us of are of eternal significance. And so we do well today, all of us in this room, to listen and reflect and respond to our perfect heavenly Father who loves us enough to warn us. That's what we're gonna see here. We're gonna take a look here at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you love us enough to give us strong words from time to time. And Lord, as we come to a passage that is a strong word of warning for us, I pray that you'd open our hearts to both hear what we need to hear, to be both convicted where we need to be convicted, to also be assured with your grace where we need to be assured with your grace, and ultimately move all of us in this room all of us gathering wherever we're gathering today to press into Jesus, to press into his mercy, to rest in him. Pray this all in Jesus' name. 
And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Uh, The preacher of Hebrews here delivers a strong warning about judgment in this passage. Why, why this warning? Well, the book of Hebrews, as we've talked about before as we've walked through this, this uh, study, is addressed to first century uh, Jewish Christians who are facing intense persecution because of their faith. Like, I'm talking about intense persecution. Intense persecution. Facing death in, on a daily basis because of their faith. And as a result, they are facing a temptation in in light of that that persecution, that suffering, to abandon their faith in Christ in order to escape it, to live, right? The passages uh, that are both immediately before and after this passage give us a glimpse really into the context of this warning, right? Last week we looked at, uh, as part of the passage we looked at last week, verses 24 and 25, where the writer of Hebrews encourages readers, right? He encourages us in the church, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And then he will go further here in verses 32 through 39 that we'll look at next week. He speaks of the suffering that they have faced in light of their faith, publicly being called out and punished, their property plundered and taken from them. And and, and as he mentions this, he's encouraging them to keep persevering and to not be like those who shrink back and are destroyed Right, so putting those together, we get an understanding of why this warning is given. In the face of suffering and persecution, some of those who had been a part of the church, who had been one time counted among the believers gathered there, had now been shrinking back. They had neglected meeting together. They had a declining regard for the church's authority. They sought to define the relationship with Jesus and his church on their own terms. And in some cases, they just quit the church and quit Jesus altogether. That's the context. That's why this warning is given here. So let's consider the warning itself. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice sins. Now, this is not saying to a Christian who struggles in some particular area of sin, uh, that you struggle with some particular sin, that you've been fighting, you long to be rid of that sin, but you continue to battle it. You continue to fail in it from time to time. Uh, That is not saying that, hey, eventually the forgiveness of Christ is going to run out for you, right? You can only sin in that way so many times, and then then it's gone, right? There's no more. That is not what this is telling us. There, there is no threshold uh, to, that, that Jesus will kind of hit with you in, in, a, in a journey through sin where he will refuse to forgive you anymore if your desire is to repent, to desire to be rid of that sin, the desire to fight that sin and overcome it. He, there will never be an end to his grace as you continue to turn to him in repentance and faith. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that there's a limit, there's a cap. This warning is actually describing someone who, who, though they may claim to be a Christian, may gather with the church, is someone that has never ever been truly a believer of Christ, in Christ. And they display their rejection of Christ's sacrifice by their deliberate and continual unrepentant rebellion against his truth. Deliberate 
intentional sin is what, what is being talked about here. In fact, to make, to make the point of emphasis in the, the Greek text, the original Greek, the word deliberately is the first word in this verse. It's the first word. It's driving home the point. This, we're talking about deliberate rebellion. And it is a continual deliberate rebellion. The person described here is persisting in an open rebellion against God and his word without care or concern for what they're doing. In that, they reject Jesus. They reject Jesus, who is the only sacrifice for their sins. And so by the rejection of Christ, no sacrifice for sins remains for them. It says here that this happens after the person has received the knowledge of truth. And again, this isn't talking about somebody who was once a genuine believer, that you are, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, that you are in danger of losing your salvation. The scriptures do not teach that. This passage is not teaching that. We always have to interpret scripture in light of other scriptures. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand if you're truly a believer in Christ. Right? This, this isn't saying that these were once genuine believers. Quite the opposite. Their rebellion exposes that they never, ever truly embraced Jesus in saving faith. But rather it means that these are people who understand what Jesus has done. They know intellectually the gospel. They understand what, what Jesus says to them in his word. But they intentionally knowingly, willingly reject it and continue on in open rebellion against Jesus and his word. John Calvin is, is helpful in kind of explaining here. He says, the apostle describes as sinners, not those who fall in any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. Right? This is not a believer. It's not describing a believer who struggles now and then with a certain sin, but repents and desires to overcome that sin in Christ. This is open, ongoing rebellion against God in his word. This is saying, I know what you say in your word, God, but I'm going to live how I want to live, and I don't care. That's the heart here. That's the heart here. I'm going to do my thing Anyway, the result of such a rebellion and rejection of the only sacrifice for sins is certain judgment described here in verse 27, right? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What you have in this verse is a picture, really a three-part picture, three-image picture of God's wrath, against sin and unrepentant sinners, right? You, you have a legal picture, an emotional picture, and a physical picture. The legal picture is that God's wrath is judgment. It's a, it's a legal act, a legal act based upon your guilt as a sinner outside the grace of Jesus. It's a just act of a perfectly holy and righteous God against sinners in their sin, and God carries out his judgment on those who reject Christ. And to reject Christ as your savior is to have Christ as your just judge. And he will judge you. The emotional picture is that his wrath is a fury of fire. 
God in the act of judgment is not just a little bit perturbed or a little bit angry, but passionate with fury against sin. And the physical picture is that this fire will consume the adversaries. The sinner outside the grace of Jesus will be swallowed up in the flames of legal and passionate judgment. But consume does not mean annihilation. Right? The, the scriptures do not teach that judgment lasts only for a time until you are consumed and you cease to exist. No, uh, the, the consume here means that you will be swallowed up in suffering forever. Eternal judgment, eternal torment, eternal suffering. And verses 28 and 29 offer a comparison between the, the punishment of the, uh, that was in the law of Moses for breaking the first commandment, right? To worship other gods in place of the one true God. That punishment in the law of Moses was death. Two or three witnesses can testify that you worship other gods. You are to be put to death. But the comparison is how much worse will the punishment be for those who reject Jesus and his work and outrage the spirit of grace. How much worse? Judgment is a punishment worse than death is what we're being told here because it goes beyond death for all eternity. The text then ends with another description of judgment in verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great American theologian and preacher, uh, preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his text actually came from Deuteronomy, but his title came from right here in Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a hard word it's a strong warning. And it's a, it's a word that our world, our culture, doesn't want to hear. Our culture only wants to see God as love, right? But, and of course, we got to define what that means. God is love. But our culture wants to define God is love. And that means, by the world's definition, God will only and always accept you and never correct you or challenge you in your thinking, in your living, in anything. He will only and always accept you and approve of you and affirm you. Our culture only wants to see God as that counselor who's in the sky, who's there when you're in trouble and you really need him, but otherwise he'll stay out of your business and leave you alone to live your own life, to live as you see fit. But friends, if your view of God does not include understanding that God is also holy, that he is righteous, that he is a perfectly just judge, full of wrath against sin. If your view of God doesn't include that, then it is a distorted and unrealistic, unbiblical picture of who God is. Do you know that Jesus himself talked more about hell than any other person in the, in the Bible? Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Uh, Matthew 13, 
49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you can list out the quotes that all sound about the same as that over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus also said in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the strong warning here in Hebrews 10 is for those who would reject and attack the person and work of Jesus and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's described in verse 29. To trample underfoot the, the, the Son of God, that is to reject the person of Jesus Christ. To deny his deity or to attack his character like the Pharisees who accused him as he healed people and, and, and exercised demons of, of being in league with Satan. They trampled underfoot the Son of God. Profaning the blood of the covenant is to reject and attack Christ's work. For his blood is nothing less than his divine life willingly offered in your place to pay for your sins. And to outrage the spirit of grace is to reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit who enlightens our minds and our hearts, opens our hearts to life and faith in Jesus the Spirit who secures our adoption as God's children, the Spirit who unites us to Jesus and to his church. The warning here for those who reject Jesus and his work and outrage the Spirit of grace is that judgment is certain. It's certain. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we need to remember that this warning is addressed to a body of believers, a group of Christians, a church. And so it serves as a call as well, a call to persevering faith. It's not just a strong warning, it's a call to persevering faith. The point of this warning is that it is addressed to the church is that true believers would heed it. They'd hear it. They would respond, right? As you yell at your child, stop. You want them to hear you. You want them to pause. You want them to actually stop and listen to the warning and respond. When you tell your kid to stop before they run into a busy street, you do so because you want them to hear that warning and actually avoid the destruction, the danger that is waiting for them. It's the same thing here. The preacher wants these brothers and sisters to be encouraged by, his, by this warning to not abandon the faith, but to persevere, even in the face of opposition and suffering. There's also a reality, though, that in addressing a, a body of believers, warning a group of Christians that it acknowledges the reality that there are in the midst of the church believers and unbelievers who both claim the name Christian. And so we should begin with some self-examination. How do we know we're in Christ? How do we know? Jesus says, you can tell by the fruit, right? You can tell the tree by its fruit. So what is the fruit of faith that you see in your life? Where do you see the fruit of faith in your life? And I ask this, that it may encourage you. That it may encourage you. Do you find yourself being corrected by God's word as you read it? 
and that when you and the Bible come to a disagreement, do you find yourself submitting and yielding to what it has to say to you rather than you trying to submit it to what you want it to say? Do you experience conviction for your sin? Do you grieve your sin? Do you hate your sin and long to be free of it? Is your life marked with regular repentance? Regular, not like a one, a one time I repented a long time ago. Now I just do whatever. No, like daily. Right? Yesterday, Reformation Day, Halloween, I don't know, whatever your conscience allows, right? The 95 theses of Martin Luther nailed on the, the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Theses number one, all of life is a life of repentance. Is your life marked with repentance? Do you have a growing desire to obey God, to do what he says? Do you feel a growing passion for God in his word? Do you desire to, to go to the Lord in prayer? Do you find yourself desiring to, to share Jesus with others? Do you have a, a growing awareness of the fish, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of others around you? And do you desire to do what you can to step in and help and care and serve? Are you increasingly willing to forgive those who have hurt you or betrayed you as Jesus has forgiven you? There's a tough one. Are you willing to be charitable and gracious with those who disagree with you? Do you have a growing love for Jesus and for others? Do you find yourself growing in generosity with your time and with your abilities and with your resources? You may not be able to think about all that right now, but I want you to think about those questions. And, and what does your life say? Not just what, what do you know the right answer to be, but what does your life actually communicate are the answers to those questions in your life? And if you can answer yes to, to more and more of those questions, and you can see some real fruit of faith in your life, praise God, right? Literally, you should stop and praise him right now for it is his grace at work in your life. Don't let it go to your head and puff you up with conceit, but absolutely let it go to your heart with assurance that you are in Christ, that the, the spirit is at work in your life, that he is growing you day by day to live and to follow him. So give him praise. Praise Jesus for his grace at work in your life and, and keep pressing into him and keep persevering in the faith. But if your answers to those questions are discouraging. You can't see much fruit in your life today. This warning is still meant to call you to a persevering faith in Jesus. It's meant to ask you to stop in your tracks and turn and repent and come back to Christ. Don't disregard the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Don't reject Jesus and his work, his finished work for you. But look upon Jesus and his cross again. You may 
know the gospel, but if you can't see any real fruit of faith in your life, it may be that you have not ever really truly placed your faith in, in Jesus. It's possible. Wouldn't be the first time somebody joined a church, trusted Christ in word, got baptized, only to desert the church and live a godless life. It happens. But hear the warning and respond to the offer of grace that is available in Jesus. Perhaps you've just approached church like another social club to be a part of, but you've never given yourself to Jesus, seeing him as the only hope of rescue that you desperately need to cling to. If that's you, hear the strong word of warning and consider it. Would you consider the reality of your sin and the certain judgment that you deserve? And would you then consider Jesus? Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh that he might live the perfect life that you never could. Jesus, the God-man, who then went to the cross to die in your place as the sacrifice for your sins, the only sacrifice for your sins. Jesus, who on the cross suffered the just judgment that you deserve in your place for your sins. He who took the full cup of God's wrath, every last drop for you. Jesus suffered the fury of fire. He was consumed there at the cross as if he was all of God's adversaries. Look at him who willingly fell into the hands of the living God. In your place, that he might take the fear of it out of it. Look at Jesus who extends to you instead an, an invitation to fall into his hands of mercy. This passage shows us with certainty that God is unswervingly just, but, but what does the whole Bible teach us of his disposition? What does God delight to do? The answer, friends, is that he delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Jonathan Edwards Sinners in the hands of the angry God guy. This is what he says. By the way, that sermon, uh, don't let the title fool you. Um, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased that they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Mercy is what comes natural to God. Mercy is what his heart delights to do. Judgment is his nature, but it's his strange work. He doesn't relate to the two in the same way. When Moses in Exodus 33 asked God to show him his glory, right? God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he causes his glory to pass by him. But it's the next chapter in chapter 34 that gives Moses the clearest view of God's glory. Really the clearest view of who God is in the Old Testament until Jesus shows up in the New Testament. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When, when God reveals his glory to Moses, he reveals his goodness, his mercy. But he also reveals his holiness and his justice. But notice 
the difference. Our sins pass down to our children and our grandchildren. But God's merciful covenant love flows down to thousands. That could be translated to a thousand generations, which is just a way of saying it has no end. You cannot outsin his mercy. His mercy comes to us with such lavishness that it swallows up all of our sins. Look at another Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9. It says there, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's heart, do you hear it in that? Is that we would seek him while he may be found in this lifetime, while you may find him, to seek him, that we would call upon him. He invites the wicked to return to him. And he promises that if we will do that, he will abundantly pardon. Not a little bit, not I'll think about it, but just lavish you with grace upon grace upon grace, unending mercy and pardon. We expect God to be wrathful, right? We expect him to be angry, right? We, we expect him to, so, in so many ways, come at us swinging a gavel of judgment and just whacking us with it. But the Bible shows us again and again, yes, God is holy. Yes, he is righteous and perfectly just. But the desire of his heart is to show mercy. His thoughts are not our thoughts and our ways are not his ways. His ways and thoughts are so much higher than ours. He's, his mercy is so much beyond our comprehension. The reality is, friends, you will fall into the hands of the living God. One way or the other, you will fall into the hands of the living God. One, you can reject Jesus and you can do so with fear of certain eternal judgment, as our text warns. Or you can right now look to Jesus and respond to his invitation. Hear him saying to you, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hear his invitation. Come to him. Fall into Jesus' hands of mercy, where he can hold you and sustain you and enable you to persevere in him. Hear the warning and let him come and swoop you up into his arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to get a glimpse of your glory today? Help us to see your holiness, your justice, and the reality of our sin, but even more, help us to see your heart of mercy. Jesus, may we be a people who come to you and find rest for our souls. By your spirit, save us, Sustain us, equip us, and send us 
to serve you and to share your mercy with others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.